This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Philippa Gregory, welcome to Better Reading. Hello, lovely to be here. Yeah, no, it's really nice. Um, you know, I was thinking I was just in London a couple of weeks ago. We probably should have met in person. I think maybe oh, I that didn't. Would have been so much fun because you it? can now. Like I, I swore when we came out of lockdown that I would never complain about book tour or interviews or meetings ever again. I would do them with a glad heart. Mm. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. You just say, yeah. Um, do you know what happened though? I landed in London the week the Queen died, and things yeah. just yeah got difficult. Yeah, are you in London or are you? I know. Uh, I actually, well, I I have a. Uh, I have a place in London, but my main home is in Leicestershire. I live oh, in the country. beautiful. I'm a real country girl. Yeah, yeah, gorgeous. All right, let me introduce you, and then I want to I want to kind of talk about growing up and how you came to writing. Philippa Gregory is the author of multiple New York Times bestselling novels. I think you've been around my whole career <laughs> as a writer. I think I had, <laughs> I had someone in a in a signing queue once, and she said, "I feel like you brought me up." Yeah, I went like, yeah, I probably yeah. did. I have been yeah. writing for uh, forty years now. Yeah, and I started as a bookseller, maybe thirty-eight years ago or thirty-five years ago. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Published my first novel just after my PhD. After I finished yeah. my PhD, and I finished my PhD in nineteen eighty-four, which is a date I can always remember because it was so significant. Uh, so I think I came out with my first novel in something like eighty-six. Okay, can you hold that thought? Because I want to come back to that after I introduce you. Um, Multiple New York Times best-selling novels, including The Other Boy Lynn Girl, The Last Tudor, The Taming of the Queen, and the Fairmile series. She's received a PhD from the University of Edinburgh and is a fellow of other esteemed universities, where she's an, an expert in women's history. This year, she was ordered a CBE for her services to literature and charity. So we're talking about her latest novel. Uh, it's the third in the series of the Fair Mile series, and it's called Dawnlands. Now, I want to go back to that. Talk to me about your first book. It's such a long time ago, isn't it? It's yeah. more than 40 years ago. I was, I just finished my PhD at Edinburgh University, and that was on the 18th century novel and its impact on society and how it grew out of the society it was in. And so I was very much thinking, I, I read as as part of the research for that, uh, 200 18th century novels. And these are, I just want to remind everybody, enormous. These are not your little, you know, your little modern, mm. you know, 50-page <laughs> thing. These are, you know, three-deckers. They are huge, huge, huge novels. And uh, at the end of 
that I got my PhD, which is very gratifying. But what I realized afterwards, long afterwards, is I'd actually served a very arduous apprenticeship in mm. how a novel is put together and how how the story unfolds and the structure of the novel and how it works. And I hadn't intended to study that, but of course, you know, this was the time when novel the novel form was practically invented and so at the end of that I really had a deep understanding of how a novel flows and how the story fits in with the structure and of course I was very well aware of the dramas of the 18th century and so I wrote my first novel literally as a sort of break for amusement when I'd finished and when I was finishing my PhD and as I wrote it I became more and more convinced that it was potentially a very good novel. And I sent it off to a couple of literary agents, one of whom I knew, they sent it back and I put it in a box and forgot about it. And then I moved house and unpacked the box and found it again and went like, I'll give it another shot. And I sent it off to somebody and she just loved it and uh, sent it out to publishers worldwide. And it became a worldwide bestseller, my first novel. And as far as I know, I am still the only person ever to have a genuine first novel as a bestseller. Yeah, wow. It is extraordinary Mm. because it's life-changing, isn't it? Did you think you were going to be a fiction writer? No. Uh, Even after I published my first novel, I thought I would get a job. I was very, very, I'm, I'm quite radical. I really wanted to work in politics for the improvement of society, for social justice. And so I was going for jobs uh, in that and also uh, hoping to teach at university. So going for academic jobs, literally, while uh, my career was unfolding before me and I got a three-book contract. So I went, well, I'll do these other two books. (laughs) Like, you know, that's easy to do. Uh, And, of course, it's demanding and fascinating to do. Um, And at the end of it, I realised that it was such a wonderful experience to spend your life researching and reading and then writing is just I mean for me it's it's idyllic I have Mm. an idyllic life I'm very very lucky I'm touching wood Mm. I feel the same way about my career uh, especially now in the last 10 years I had uh, 28 authors in the office the other day now some people might say that's crazy um, <laughs> and <I'm very> brave, <laughs> brave, uh, and they were all different. Like some were debut authors, uh, some were mid-career authors, and some were Tom Keneally, very, very established authors. So I just, just, only one Tom Keneally. Hopefully. It's only one. Yeah, not some. <laughs> oh, did I say that? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'll I was just, that. I was just laughing at the yeah. thought of Tom Keneally. There's only one. Yeah, he was wonderful. 88. So you could say that's kind of you know heading towards the end of career. So we had people across all parts of their career, and they were there for a lunch. It was Lebanese food, and Lebanese we paired paired it with Lebanese wine. And as I said, the one and only Tom Keneally was there. But every single one of them, there is a thread that runs through authors, is that they always think that they're fakes, that they're not really writers at any stage of their career. They're always worried that they're not quite there. Do you feel that? No. no. Even Tom said he felt that. No, I, I absolutely know I'm a writer. And I absolutely know I'm a storyteller. Yeah. So if you ever ask me anything, I cannot help but shape it into an anecdote. It's very rare that uh, 
I mean, I, if I if it was boring to me, I wouldn't even say it. So, you know, if you said to me, you know, did you have a nice walk today? If there was an interesting thing I could tell you about it, I would tell you about it. And it would it would come pretty rounded and pretty complete. And if it, if nothing of interest happened, but something of interest always happens. But if nothing of interest happens, I would probably just say yes. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I literally I see the world in narrative form. I've learned that about myself I after years of writing. So I just, I mean, I just naturally think in, in terms of a story. And uh, yes, I absolutely see myself as a writer. Yeah, yeah. And do you... I see myself as a historian. Yes. Because uh, at the same time as I almost unconsciously make things into a narrative, I'm always interested in what was there before or what happened before or how we got to here. Mm. So I think... I mean, both of those, I'm sure I inherited from my mother, who was a great storyteller and was fascinated with the past also. Mm. And how much we learn from the past. Uh, well, we do if we have any sense. Mm. Mm. <laughs> how, how how easy it is to completely ignore it and repeat the mistakes again. Mm. Yes. And that happens. Yeah. Don't get me started on politics because, uh, oh, that's a subject that I can't stop talking about. There has been a lot of conversation, particularly throughout comments at Better Reading, where people are talking about um, sexism and historical fiction and saying that, you know, to call a book, let's say, I, I'm just making this up because I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but let's say it's called, you know, Tom Keneally's Dressmaker's Wife. Um, and people will say to me in comments, well, that's sexist. And, you know, you can correct me. What I'm seeing with historical fiction, particularly in Australia these days, is that they are giving women a voice, that if the dressmaker wife of Tom Keneally didn't have a voice and he always had the voice, that we're hearing it now through historical fiction or we're learning about it. Um, I don't think it's a sexist title to say, for instance, uh, the Time Traveller's Wife. Yeah, uh, which is a real title and a very. I fun, love that book. Great book. Great book. And I mean, actually, I think what you want in it. I mean, first of all, what do you want in a title? You want something that that grasps, if you can, the essence of the book, that gives you a feeling about the book, that makes makes you want to read the book. Um, and I think the Time Traveller's Wife. That's a great title for that. It's not that it's insulting the time traveler's wife by ignoring her it's putting her center stage but it's saying her importance in this novel is her relationship to the time traveler which is in all fairness what all the novels about so i think it's completely appropriate mm. and also just by centering someone's relationship to a man does not diminish them as a person mm. it just says uh, we're approaching this this person through this relationship like the six wives of henry the eighth Mm. You can write, for instance, as David Starkey did, a book about the six wives of Henry VIII in which you go through each wife in turn telling her story. But because it's David Starkey, that is quite sexist in that the concept behind it is that what is of what is of the greatest interest about these women is the man they married. And if I was writing a book about Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves, Catherine Howard, Catherine Parr. I think that's, I wasn't counting as I went. I think that's the six. Wow, if I'm I impressed. About, if I was writing about these women, I wouldn't be foregrounding 
their marriage, even though it's Henry VIII, because I'd be writing about them. So I think it depends very much on whether you say the most interesting thing about this woman is who she was married to. And therefore, basically, we're going to tell his story and hers will run alongside it. Or whether you're saying this is a woman of immense interest in her own right. She's actually, in the case, for instance, of Catherine Parr, who I'm extremely fond of, she is more interesting than her husband, Henry VIII. And also we know Henry VIII's story. So mm. I think just by describing someone as a wife is not to diminish them. It's mm. to say you're going to concentrate on an aspect of them. Mm. And in the case of, say, Catherine Howard, it's the biggest aspect of her life. That's her murderer. So you might mm. as well say Catherine Howard and her murderer, you know, and that, mm. you know, that 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 deals with the fact that many, many women are married to men who are overwhelming in their perceived stature. And it's not sexist to recognize that. It's really important that we recognize that because mm. that's the injustice of history. It's not the injustice of the reporter of history. It's when you look at the Duchess of Norfolk, and all you can see is Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk. That's that's you reflecting what history shows you. And the job of a historian, I think, is to try and get behind the obvious, the self-aggrandizing uh, nature of some men to the wives who stand sometimes having completely fascinating lives behind them. But you won't know until you look for them. Mm. I feel um, that we're hearing more women's voices of the past. Absolutely and, we are, but we not because not because of a shift in the genre itself, but because from about sixties, nineteen sixty or so, women historians particularly, but all historians have been looking at women's histories and have been trying to rediscover history. So you get a wonderful book by Sheila Rowbottom in the late 60s. It's called Hidden from History. And it's actually looking at the historical past and seeing what women were doing in the historical past. Sometimes historical events are completely made by women, misreported, so you don't know about them. So the history changes, which is when uh, novelists come to research a period and go like, well, I'd like to write about this period. Maybe I'd like to write about this character. What's going on in this period? Now you find a history of women and you can get, get your teeth into it. You can write the, the, mm. the fictional history of women because the historians have done the research for us. And mm. one of the, the great drives of my life, uh, which is I'm about to publish a history of women in England, is the non-fiction, the, the, the true history of uh, the women of England, from which I draw almost all my fiction. Mm. Okay, so I've got another one for you, and this isn't a fully formed thought, but I'm going to hit you with it anyway. One of the things that Tom Keneally said to me recently, because he's a writer of fiction and non-fiction, as you know, he said First Nations people were written out of history. They were there, but they were never written about. And it just got me thinking about the reliability of history books. Absolutely. They are, it won't come as a surprise to you, you know, to reflect that, you know, they are the they are the story of the victory by mm. the victorious. You know, you won't read a big, big history until certainly this century and maybe uh, a couple of decades before it, all of the history was written primarily by men 
because mm. women weren't admitted to universities to study history in England until the 1920s. So you've got a massive scholarly background, which is all male, mm. primarily white, primarily elite, educated, wealthy. That's how they get to be at university in the first place. Of course, they write the history of their fathers and brothers and ancestors. Of course, they write it approvingly. So the enemies of their fathers and brothers and ancestors get a pretty poor report and they don't notice half the world. So like you don't have a lot of women in these histories because they're simply not seen. Uh, you don't certainly have First Nation people in these histories because they too are completely obscured, but that's worse because I think they are obscured because the people writing these histories in that period in the 19th century were absolutely aware that they were terribly guilty of mm. terrible crimes against humanity. Mm. And so you don't get any honest history about, say, the British in India until about 100 years after the event. So when you're writing then fiction and you're using history as a source, how reliable is it? Oh, it's not reliable at all. Everything is biased. You know, like, so when people say to me, you know, you're biased, I go like, yes, of course I am, because I am a living, breathing human being with an opinion. Everything is biased. Every journalist, you know, every newspaper you write, every every history book you pick up, every novel you pick up comes from an authorial point of view. The author, someone has written it and they have based it on what they have read, which is not everything. It cannot mm. be everything. And they have an opinion about it, which is based on a limited reading. Uh, I think the what you do as a historian is when you look at the title of the book, you then look at the author of the book and you go like, what is this guy going to favour and what is he not going to know? And so I'll look at that. And then I do a lot of, when I read a lot of uh, secondary sources, I always look at where they've got their information from. So the bibliography at the back or the notes. And then I often go and read those in case they miss something that is of interest to me. So as much as you can, you go back to primary sources. But in, in my reading, if you go back to the medieval world chroniclers, then you get to the written source quite easily. They're available for the period that I was working in the Plantagenets. There is literally five written sources. There are only five. So you can read them all, mm. and, but it won't tell you anything about people's private lives or about women in England because the chroniclers are all monks or clerks, mostly living in monasteries, some attached to the royal courts with absolutely zero interest in normal people or in women or in private lives. They have an idea of what history is and it is weather and battles. And that's mm. all you get. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And so from there, you make assumptions. Yes, of course. You look at, for instance, who's at the battle and uh, who wins. And, you know, when you read their histories, you bear in mind that they are writing the story of their victory and they're not going to give much concession to the people who are defeated. And then you construct from that, as best you can, a life which you can then breathe life into as Mm -hmm. fiction. Mm -hmm. But you do start off sometimes with very, very, very thin bones. You know, sometimes sometimes you get a pretty big story, uh, pretty fully told, and sometimes you get next to nothing. Mm. So a lot of authors tell me that when they're writing that that book is in their head and they are in that time and it's a bit like actors, I guess, you know, when they're, when they're studying for a part and they're living and breathing the characters. And when they finish the book, often they miss the characters. So for you, how does your head look when you're writing? I get very, very absorbed with people that I'm writing about and they become, for the duration of the research and the book, my constant companions. Yeah. I see them more than I see probably anybody else except uh, my my grandchildren who I see every day. But yeah. uh, no, I probably see them more than that because I see them for like four or five hours at a time and I see my grandchildren. <laughs> you know, sometimes they just whiz through. They become a constant presence for about two years. Yeah. And yes, when I, when I finish, I do feel quite bereft. I do feel genuinely quite bereft. I remember saying to somebody, not only have I lost my friends, I've also been made unemployed. Yeah, that's <laughs> you know, right. This massive gulf. And I've learned, you know, because there have been so many books now, I le- I've learned that I'm going to feel like that. So what I generally do is I go like at the end, when I finish the novel, I take a holiday and I go like, I'm going to reset now. This is when I, I should be glad but I have got time off. I shall celebrate my time. How much time do you take off between each book? Almost hardly anything. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I wondered uh, about that. How many well, books have you got now? I think it's more than 30. Yeah, wow. Wow. Over a 40-year life, writing life. Yeah. Mm. So we're looking at more than one every two years, if I get it my maths right. Yeah. It is more than one every two years. Quite often... I get the two years because I'm starting it, I'm starting the research as I'm finishing the previous. So each one gets about 18 months research time. But of course, I don't have to do them sequentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially once I, once I got into the, the Plantagenet and the Tudors series, um, starting with the White Queen, the Red Queen, the White Princess, that run, because they were often the daughters of the person I'd written before or the cousin or the uh, contemporary of the one I'd written before. In a sense, the research is almost the same. The joy of it is that it's from a different perspective. Mm. And that's really thrilling to Mm. go like, 
I am writing, for instance, when I was writing The White Queen, I was entirely on the side of the Yorks in The Wars of the Roses, and I was completely committed to Elizabeth Woodville. And then the next book I wrote straight after that was The Red Queen, which was a story of her enemy, Margaret Beaufort. And it was extraordinary to say, like, now I'm just now I'm going to change sides. Mm-hmm. And I was very much comforted by so many people in uh, The Wars of the Roses simply change sides just like that. So mm-hmm. I felt justified but it's a big jump it's a mm-hmm. big intellectual jump to that the people that you loved for the last two years are now your enemies mm. and there's always a thread isn't there I mean you could just keep writing because every character could be another book mm. absolutely and I, that's how I come to the next character almost always because uh, they've turned up and I've gone like gosh you're interesting I'll get mm. back to you as mm. we can. Mm. do you ever think about writing something modern I have written modern books. Uh, I kind of really amused myself. I, I wrote a, a book about a modern woman. It's it's a comedy, but she was struggling with the reality of modern life. And um, she threw open her window one morning and a caravan had had arrived and was sort of dumped in her uh, little garden. And out of the caravan came an old lady. And I literally was writing this for fun. So I had no idea who it was. And uh, she goes down to find out. And uh, the old lady is Sylvia Pankhurst. And I went like, oh, gosh, you just can't stop doing history, can you? And it was just delightful. It was a delightful novel to write. And I didn't make her exactly Sylvia Pankhurst. I made her one of Sylvia Pankhurst's followers and supporters. And it was just such fun. But uh, I was so conscious of the fact that even when I'm writing a contemporary novel, I'm so aware of the history. I I can't write in a contemporary bubble. Yeah, yeah. I I often, if I'm in conversation with anybody that writes any type of history, um, it's always incredibly interesting how they bring that conversation to now because, you know, they're so well informed. Can I ask you? Because you. I think it's just to say, in reply to that, I think it's, as we were saying, if you are interested in history, you don't bring it into now, it's there. When you see now, you see the past as well. You just, it's just a point of view which in a way you can't resist. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's have, exactly what to, I was thinking. Yeah, you would have to censor yourself to say, like, I'm not in this in this conversation yeah. to mention anything except today. You know, for me, it would be like cutting half your brain off. Well, it would be taking away almost everything you know. Yes. Yeah. I'm much more informed about the past than I am about the present. Yeah. So I am going to ask you a present question, though, um, because there has been such a monumental change with the Queen dying Mm -hmm. in the UK. And I was there recently. I happened to be there. I think I said this earlier when the Queen died. And I was struck by different points of view. I, I went to lots of saw people and friends and dinners and the love for her was quite immense. There was an admiration for the woman that she was, the work that she did, and the longevity, I guess. But there wasn't, I noticed there there was little faith in the institution itself. And I'm wondering, with your perspective, historical perspective, how do you see the future? It's very interesting, isn't it? I think mm. uh, partly because we live in a modern world uh, with such intense media scrutiny and such informal, uh, uncontrollable media scrutiny, the individuals and their 
particular foibles and characters become more important than the institution, that we don't live in a society which has enormous respect for any institution. We've just had a member of government, the prime minister, complain of the institution of the treasury. Mm. You could like, that's your government. That's how you govern. Mm. Like, Mm. if you have a problem with that, you should be resolving it. You can't just say they're all wrong. You can't Mm. call them bean counters. But we do live in a world which is which doesn't have respect and deference to institutions as the world did when they were formed. And we do have this terrific scrutiny of individuals. So I think Charles, King Charles, is going to have to play a blinder to retain the respect and affection of the monarchy that his mother created by such a fantastic lifelong performance of queenly dignity and taking up the role, opening it up to the public, but not too much. Very, very difficult, very difficult role to play. Mm. I don't know if he's up to it. Mm. And he also has a far harder world to do it in than she did. He also comes to the throne as a, very mature man with well-known opinions, whereas she came to the throne as almost an almost unknown, a very beautiful young woman upon whom people could pin their own aspirations and beliefs about beautiful young women, about beautiful young womanhood. So it's a very hard act to follow. Behind him comes Prince William and the family of the Waleses as they now are, and clearly they are have trained themselves and were trained to be immensely potentially successful monarchs in the sort of world that we now live in. I don't know if you can pull it off over a long life. You know, even the most dedicated of royals have skeletons in their closets and some of them have a past which is reprehensible. Mm. Uh, It's very It's very Mm. difficult to see uh, how it's going to survive, given that, as I say, it's so much focused now on individuals and individual behaviour. It's not just coming out in a beautiful coach to open Parliament now and then. It's not just opening factories. There is so much scrutiny upon individual behaviour. I doubt that any family of any numbers could survive the scrutiny which the royal family is going to get already and is going to get over the next uh, mm. generation. It's it's interesting because that spills over to politics as well. I mean, you know, I was only thinking that this morning when I was walking my dog that more and more we're relying on the personalities like the Trumps of the world, the Boris Johnsons. Like, you know, in, even in Australia people are saying, well, you know, Anthony Albanese is very quiet. He's not standing up to the 24-hour news cycle. Well, maybe because he's doing the work. You can't have everything, can you? The, the thing is, is that if you are a... a grandiose dramatist then you're going to capture the news cycle and the only thing that can stand up to you are grandiose dramatists and we live in a culture where grandiosity and histronics and drama are celebrated because Mm. we live in a rolling social media cycle so Mm. if you're having a meltdown or having a hissy fit or having a tantrum or generally carry on you know that is much more agreeable to your followers and much more interesting to them and they can involve themselves in it much more than if you're quietly getting on 
and doing your and, job as you know running the treasury department for example yeah, you I mean, know yeah. carry on is not the slogan <laughs> for the day yeah um, though you will find it extraordinarily on so many mugs I mean I think it's it feels to me like a problem of immaturity and that it's yeah. the problem of the immaturity of the media that yeah. we're in so social media is so excited by hot buttons yeah. whereas if you want sensible policy if you want you know climate change if you want social justice mm. someone's got to do the fair, work fair distribution of resources all of that is very cool steady prolonged activity and so tell me then as a historian how do you see this playing out when I'm feeling optimistic, I say that always before when humanity has got itself into a terrific, terrific existential crisis, we have always been able to use our incredibly inventive, creative and scientific abilities to solve it. So I do believe that climate change, just like world hunger, if we went, we've really got to fix this we would pour money and resources into it and we would find solutions. I believe we would even be able to cool the world down mm. if we put our minds to it. For instance, when COVID looked mm. at, at its worst, mm. there was a completely international will not to make money out of it, mm. but to actually get a vaccine. And, you know, there'd never been a vaccine faster invented and faster distributed. And then just as if you were going to go, oh, yes, but just let's remind ourselves that we are actually greedy idiots. You then people then go like, I've got a patent on it and I'm not going to give it away and I'm not going to distribute it worldwide. After all, it's going to cost you this much. So I think we always will be those two things at once. One, a, a greedy, nasty little beast. And two, I mean, a spiritual genius. Mm -hmm. And I think when we understand, when we get it into our incredibly slow heads that the world is facing an existential crisis, right, and it started already. It's oh, not even it's... facing it now. It's, you know, I remember talking about climate change when I was at school, when mm -hmm. I was a girl at school, mm -hmm. 16. So that's 50 years ago, more than 50 mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. So it started. And I think when the governments, however stupid, the individual governments are, when they get that it is actually the only thing that matters, then I think we'll get a load of money poured into the science and the scientists mm. will be working terribly hard and will we'll collaborate to solve the problem. But when you look at the big polluters of mm. the world, you go like, I don't know what it will take mm. for them to understand that we literally were in our last moments. Oh, look, you know, it's so evident here in Australia at the moment. You know, it's either we're either on fire or we're flooded. There's no in-between anymore. It's frightening. I, I saw some film yeah. from Australia, I think, last spring, and it's it's heartbreaking to see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, when you see felling of the Amazon, it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. It's extraordinary. It's yeah. extraordinary. And I was immediately going to say, you know, but let's not bring ourselves down about this. Let's bring ourselves down long enough to really recognise that everybody has got to see this. And what's so infuriating as a historian and particularly as a novelist 
is it's like you go, can I not just say this in words? Yeah. Does everybody have to experience a fire in their own field yeah. before they go like, oh, actually, this is serious? Yeah. You know, do we not have enough empathy and imagination to see a fire in someone else's field and go yeah. like, this is serious? Yeah, this is it. Philippa Gregory, Dawn Lads, wonderful book. Thank you so much for your time. It's out now. Go read it, okay? <laughs> not you the readers. <laughs> Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy it. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.